Welcome to Rental Equip Talk Radio with your host, Donald Charbonnet. This is the radio program designed for industry insiders, as well as anyone interested in getting into the rental equipment industry. Now, here is Donald Charbonnet. Hello, and again, welcome to 2020. Uh, Today, January the 15th, I am your host, Donald Charbonnet, broadcasting from New Orleans. Today's show is sponsored by the J.T. Bates Insurance Group for all your insurance needs. A big thank you to all my faithful followers. Tell your friends and associates that podcasts live on. Thank you. And don't forget about my book entitled, Screw You, The Comeback is Always Stronger Than the Setback. It's about careers and business in the rental industry, available on Amazon. Some valuable lessons to be learned. And remember, you can always listen on demand after the show. And please let me know if there's a certain guest or subject you'd like to have, and I'll do my best to get them. I can always be reached at rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com, or you can call or text me at 504-615-0540. And don't forget, the ARA show is right around the corner in February, not too early to start that shopping list. And so today, I'm pleased to have two guests on the show to discuss a very important subject, that being insurance. And I've been around the industry for many decades and dealt with a lot of different insurance people, but I think you'll really enjoy the presentation that my guests have today. And so first, I have Jamie Bates. Uh, Jamie's been on the show before. Uh, Jamie is the Chief Executive Officer for J.T. Bates Insurance Group, an insurance agency serving the equipment and material handling industries for more than 30 years. Jamie leads overall operations and senior staff activities. She also steers J.T. Bates Insurance Group's national business development initiatives by developing new risk management products that protect equipment and enhance profitability for dealers. As a result of her leadership, J.T. Bates Insurance Group has received the Fast 50 Award from Business First for two consecutive years. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us back. Okay. I also have Jim Ricker. Jim is the company founder. Uh, With over 30 years of experience in the equipment industry, Jim founded J.T. Bates Insurance Group and developed rental equipment protection after recognizing a need for better coverage at competitive rates. Prior to this, Jim worked with John Deere, now Sentry, before moving to a career in insurance consulting. He now consults as a program development and procurement specialist for national accounts. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I do have one correction on your uh, presentation. We uh, got our third year as the top 50 fastest growing oh. companies in the state of Ohio. So just hey, a little I'll have to update my notes on that. Thank you. <laughs> so we're here today to talk about uh, insurance. And with two of you on the show, I'm going to throw some stuff out there, and you guys can uh, flip a coin to decide who's going to answer answer what along the way. Uh, again, this is all for the uh, benefit of the listeners who are in the equipment business. And so uh, first question would be insurance claims. When should you report, submit a claim? Okay, got to get my uh, insurance claims. Um, when should you submit them? Is that what your question was? Yes, sir. 
Uh, Jamie, why don't you go ahead and take this one? I can talk to you about the claims made and stuff, but she might be more into the uh, uh, when to submit the claims. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So um, this, I think sometimes it can be difficult to discern kind of when those claims should come in because you get a claim and you uh, assume to just go ahead and submit it to your insurance company. And I think it's important to remember the purpose of the insurance uh, programs that you have in place, whether it's liability or physical damage or uh, whatever it happens to be. And it's, I, I, I like to think about it as I do with my auto, my car insurance, my automobile insurance. Um, if I have a, if I have a claim, uh, or I've been in an accident and the damages are maybe $700 and my deductible is 500. Well, I wouldn't submit that claim into my insurance company because I know that that's going to end up being a hit against my insurance uh, loss ratio or loss history, and so there's a potential for a rate increase. And so I think it's important to apply similar thought processes to our business insurance policies as well. That insurance is really intended to be there, uh, even though it could cover it. it. You know, my car insurance would have covered that specific claim. Uh, it, it may not be the best use of that coverage. And so um, if you've got a small claim that maybe is only going to yield you a few hundred dollars or maybe even, you know, depending on what your, what your company can actually withstand, it may be a couple thousand dollars. It may be beneficial to hold off on uh, filing that claim to make sure that you have that insurance in place within a, a competitive rate when you have those catastrophic claims that really can affect the livelihood of your business. Right. Okay, so uh, along with that, talking about claims, how do claims affect the actual insurance premiums? Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that we talk a lot to our dealers about is the difference between severity and frequency. Um, So there's the loss ratio portion of the, you know, when you're looking at your overall claims history, the loss ratio, which is how much premium the dealer has, or the um, the care is, excuse me, the insured has paid in to the insurance policy versus how much has been paid out in claims. So, insurance companies are still in business to make money, but at the same time, it's you know they're there to be sure to pay your to pay the claims that, that happen so that you can be made whole again. But, uh, like I said, the, you know, you want to be careful what you're submitting as far as claims are concerned because of that. If your loss ratio is high, then there's a good chance that the carrier, carrier will increase your, your premium. And when I say severity versus frequency, you may have one really big claim that gets you really close to paying, them paying out more in damages than they took in for premium, but that one-off can be, sometimes can be less damaging to your overall premium than if you had frequency, which is many small claims, uh, which shows more of a pattern of uh, potential risk in the future for something, you know, to happen that could potentially be um, catastrophic. So, so what I'm hearing is that the, the less claims, the better. Uh, no matter what the size is, am I correct? I would I would agree with that. I think that uh, utilizing an insurance policy for its intended purpose, which is to make sure that your business is protected and, and its livelihood is protected, and really reserving it for those times when 
you want to make sure that you're made whole. I think that's really the best, uh, best business practice. Okay. So I was talking with someone the other day, and they said that they got a big surprise uh, on their renewal that the, uh, the premiums went up like 20%. What, is, what are your thoughts about how to protect your insurance premiums year over year so something like that doesn't happen? Uh, well, Jim, you want to go ahead and answer that one? Yeah, well, the uh, biggest thing is we just touched base on it is that, uh, and I can't, uh, I can't emphasize it hard, long, hard enough, but it's lost control. And the thing that's going to help keep your premiums down year in and year out is a good loss history. And Jamie had mentioned that uh, uh, the claims are coming in there, the frequency, severity type of things. We get dealers that seem to turn in claims almost every day. They're not big ones. They're $1,000 here or whatever, but, you know, they just, they kind of mount up, and we have a, in the industry, there's a 65% rule, I guess, that it's 65%, that's break it even. Anything over that, they're losing money. That 35% there, it's uh, to pay claims, to pay commissions, and pay service, and so on and so forth. So, uh, once you hit past that 65% uh, mark, you're almost inevitably going to get some type of insurance premium increase. Okay, so basically, keep again, keep your claims down and your premiums year year over year may not go up very much. Right, and then you mentioned earlier, I think somewhere along the line about um, how often should they get quotes? You know, every year, once every three years, whatever, something along that line. But uh, getting quotes don't make a big difference in your in your overall insurance uh, coverages. What uh, happens is that um, each agent. You know, that comes in to quote your business quotes based on what the incumbent agent has in place. So if he made a mistake, the guys that are coming in behind him uh, are mostly making the same mistake. So what you need to have is somebody who is an advocate that knows your insurance policies and knows how to uh, to put the right place, coverages in the right place, knows how to uh, work with the premiums, and knows how to work with the carriers uh, to be able to keep your premiums down. So on an average... Most insurance companies look at somewhere between a 5 and 10% uh, increase in premiums uh, almost every year, somewhere in that area. Just enough so it doesn't hurt. You know, if you're paying $100,000 and you get a 5% increase, whatever, it's another five grand. but you can throw that back into we did a little bit more business or something along that line. So it doesn't really hurt, except if you stay in with that same agent and same thing and every year that goes up 5% or 10%, we get into a program about five years, you're looking at a 25% bump and in increase in premiums where you may have, premiums may have gone down, you may have gotten into a soft or hard market somewhere along the way, although your premiums kind of just keep going up. And most comments from dealers when I talk to them, they say, oh yeah, we're going to get an increase. We get an increase every year. It's just, it's just got people ingrained and educated in the fact that, hey, your premiums are going to go up, the economy and so on and so forth, loss history is going to make a difference, and sales and number of employees and so on and so forth. So they got reasons that uh, that they can increase those, uh, increase those rates. And so uh, as an advocate, uh, I think that you don't want to shop every year. Uh, it's not always necessarily good to change companies, not, you know, to keep bouncing from one carrier to the next because you're not building any kind of loyalty. But you also want to keep that guy that's on the on the books, the current agent. You want to keep him honest, and I don't know if that's a good word, but you want to be able to be able to work with them and keep the premiums in line so that they don't go up every year. I've got a dealer I just renewed here not too long ago. Uh, he's been my sixth year with me, and in six years he hasn't had a rate increase. 
And so the difference yeah. between a premium increase and a rate increase is is another thing that you got to be looking at because your uh, premiums could go up based on increased sales. It could go up based on you know inventory changes or whatever. But what you have to look at are the rates. Because that's what drives it. You may have the same premium but have a higher rate, but your inventory amounts may have gone down or your exposure may have gone down. So rather than looking at premiums, you want to look at the rates. And that's the thing that a good good advisor does is he goes in, make sure the rates are in place, make sure that they're not getting out of line. Yeah. And, and Jim, you mentioned something that I was going to ask you uh, a little bit down the road, but uh, you mentioned the concept of soft and hard markets. Could you elaborate just for a moment about what what drives those markets to be hard or soft? Because I've I've been through several cycles where the the agent says we're in a hard market or other times we're in a soft market. Well, a number of things drive that. Some of it, uh, like weather conditions or whatever, things really get bad, like the fires out in California, some of that sort of thing where they're paying out uh, premiums. Everything's dollar-based, so if the industry starts getting past that 65% level or whatever the level it happens to be, they could roll into a hard market. The economy drives a lot of it. You know, if you get a if you get a bad economy and people are, you know, the money's not coming in, manufacturers and stuff aren't making money, then that's going to drive a hard and soft market. We've been in a soft market now for quite some time, so uh, when the hard market comes back, I don't know. I'm looking at it, you mentioned earlier in this call that uh, you have talked to somebody whose premiums were up 10% or 20%. I forget exactly what you said, but I see that happening now. Uh, The last four or five accounts I was involved with, they had almost a minimum of 10%, and some of them were going up as much as 20 So whether the hard market's coming back again, I don't know. Part of it was driven by the uh, elections, the presidential races, where people throw their fears in what's going to happen you know, going forward. So you can track it with the stock market. You know, the stock market will go up and down based on uh, political issues and so on and so forth. So there's a number of factors in there to drive it. But basically, a lot of it's just the uh, dollar and cents end of it. The insurance industry feels that they have to have a better, you know, they have to make more income in order to be. Uh, profitable and obviously to stay in business they have to make a profit to be able to stay in business yeah and, and so a, a moment ago we were talking about uh, getting someone different to, to quote on on the insurance and so this is kind of a, a double question but how far in advance of a policy expiration should somebody start to get a, a different quote and along with that can you explain what happens with the new agent that you're talking to uh, what I call locking up markets uh, in, in that uh, process. Yeah, one of the things, a uh, couple of things you hit on there, um, as far as how you should look at 90 days, an insurance company needs 90 days to put a program together. So basically you should be looking at 120 days out to get all the information together to get it to the agents. And one of the problems that happens is a lot of incumbent agents say, well, uh, yeah, we'll get the quotes for you. We'll go to Hartford Travelers, whoever the companies are. Well, what they're doing there is they're blocking the market. So when you get a quote, you want to have one agent go to Hartford and one agent go to Travelers and one agent go to Century or <clears throat> whoever because that way you know you're getting quotes from each one of those companies. If you let one agent go to all of them, he's going to pick the one out he does the most business with, the one that he might think has the best program, the one he thinks he might be able to convince to come down into premiums, whatever he needs to do to get that business. And then all these companies pay agencies, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, 
bonuses. I don't know that that's exactly the word I'm thinking of, but if you do a million dollars worth of insurance with them or ten billion, you're going to get uh, you're going to get better rates and than you were if you only did a one-off or one or two of them that you bring into them. So it's a repeat business thing with those also. So you need to get to the agent that uh, has the best opportunity with the company to get the be- get the best quote. So basically, if you have an advocate in there who will get all the information together, uh, decide what you need and not what somebody else has decided because a lot of people rate uh, and look at policies and they try to get the premium down as low as they can going in, so they leave coverages out that a dealer may need. So you have to, uh, if you can have it, gets in there, he's going to build the program, the one that fits your needs, because in the equipment market, there's so much a diversification. Like some of them, like we have work with some railroad things, with no, which nobody wants. We have other ones that do cranes, and we have aerial lifts, and we have rentals, and, and a lot of those things throw up red, red flags to certain companies and to certain underwriters. So you have to know... Uh, how to build that program to meet that that dealer's needs, and then you have to be able to get to the right companies that are going to be able to insure it. So that's all part of the you know part of the program, and it becomes very difficult. And I haven't met any dealers out there that really know insurance well enough that they can sit down and figure out what they actually have in their policies and what they need in their policies. Yeah. So well, it, if you don't it, yeah. do ninety days out, if you're not getting it, if it's in a rush situation. Um, Underwriters either won't do it or they'll just slap it in there and give you something just to get it through the system. You also need uh, 15 days on top of that because you want to have your quotes in by the 15th of the month. If your renewal is on the 1st of the month, you want a 15-day leadway so you can go back and review what you've got, take your time to figure out what uh, uh, what needs to be changed or do some comparisons or whatever it is you have to do. Most incumbent agents won't bring their numbers in until a day or two before renewal, and it gets the dealer confused, and they just decide that, hey, it's too much. We're not going to change. So the later you can get in with your proposal, the better off you're going to be. So it should be like a cutoff date. We're going to take all presentations by the 15th of the month. If you can't get there, I'm sorry. You know, we try again next year. Yeah. And, and Jim, can a, can a rental operator, if he's talking to a new agent, tell that agent that he's limited to the number of companies that he can, he can lock up? Because, I mean, I've had it happen where a new agent came in and just locked up the whole market, and the current agent uh, almost got screwed in the deal because he couldn't, uh, he had a hard time getting with his regular uh, carriers. Yeah. Well, I think I alluded to that a little bit earlier, but what, what a consultant does or an advocate does is that he gives that information out to those carriers who can best ensure that particular aspect of a business. So, so you don't have one agent going out and shooting quotes. What happens if I get I'm an agent and I get a request for a quote or whatever, and I shoot it to every carrier that I work with? It automatically goes out. So what they do is they block the market. The next guy that comes in decides that he wants to go to a particular carrier, and they say, well, I'm sorry, the market's already been blocked. A lot of times they will never even get a quote from that company. They just shoot the quote over to them, and it blocks the market. So you have to to find out from the agent which carrier he's going to go to. If he says he's going to Hartford, he's going to Travelers, then that's the one that he's going to go to. He's not – you have to stop them from blocking the market. 
Right. Okay. That's that's kind of what I thought, but I, I thought I should hear it from a professional like yourself. Yeah. So, so we uh, don't do that as a consultant. What we do is we put all this stuff together, information, build the program for the dealer, and then we know agents. So we call, I, like I got a dealer in uh, Nebraska, and I've got uh, agents that quoted his and where his insurance are out of Florida. And so when you get in a lot of places, you get localized, and the agent locally doesn't have that access to those other carriers. They don't even know they exist. And so you can get a good consultant or an advisor that knows the whole country. And so if you got an exposure like the one I'm talking about a little bit with the railroad exposure, uh, local agents and local insurance companies probably can't touch that. So you have to get some of the bigger players, and they may come out of California or Florida or Texas or wherever they might be in order to write that coverage properly. Okay. Uh, so I have some questions about options and different types of policies uh, that, I've, that I've seen just kind of presented, and I don't know if the rental dealer or the equipment dealer has an option to say, I'd like it quoted this way instead of that way, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, the difference between a claims made versus an occurrence policy. Can you dig into that, one of you, please? Yeah, I think that's probably me, too. Uh, big thing on that is that you want to write a policy on a claim on an occurrence basis. Um, the claims made uh, policy is it's a um, one-off deal. If you're uh, if it's on a claims made policy, it's only good through that policy period. If you go into the next year, uh, that policy is no longer in existence. So a lot of your claims come back, uh, Don. If you're if you're a year down the road, there may be a claim based on something that you did back in the previous policy year. Right. And unless you either stay with that particular policy and carrier or you buy what they call a tail-end rider, you no longer have coverages. And so um, claims made is not a good policy. There are some policies that you're forced into it, like pollution and some of the all, offshoot things. You know, that's the only way to write them. But on your basic policies, your general liabilities, your inventories and that type of thing, you want to make sure they're on an occurrence form basis because you could take an occurrence form policy and five years down the road from now, you had serviced a piece of equipment back in, you know, five years back. And there's an accident, somebody gets killed, somebody gets hurt, they're going to come back and file suit against the dealer who did the service work on it or anybody who's touched that piece of equipment. If you're on a claims made form, there's no going back. If you're on a current form, you could go back 10, 15, 20 years uh, and still be covered from that policy. Right. And, and you mentioned something that just struck a nerve with me, and that's the, the, the word pollution. And is that becoming uh, standard language? Because I was I was consulting with someone recently who uh, discovered that uh, the agent had not put in any pollution coverage. And in the equipment business, you know, with diesel and hydraulics and oil, there's yeah. always that opportunity. So uh, is that something that somebody really needs to pay attention to? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I have every client that I've ever worked with, I've put in a... Uh, um, pollution policy for them. A lot of your policies, they'll tell you, that you ask them, they'll say, oh, yeah, you have pollution. Well, almost all the policies are on an ISO form, and they have uh, uh, pollution in them, but it's usually a sudden and accidental, and it'll cover anywhere between $10,000 and $100,000 on premises and on premises only. 
But what you have to be concerned about on pollution is the waste haulers. So if you have somebody coming in hauling your waste uh, oil away and batteries or any of that sort of thing, that pollution is yours from the inception to the grave. So they're going down the road somewhere and they have an accident and that stuff spills out on the road somewhere. Everybody that's touched that manifest is going to have to be responsible for that cleanup. So the, the waste hauler may not have enough. He may have a million dollars worth of coverage, but it may be a $5 million cleanup. So everybody that's in that on his manifest is going to share in paying that claim. Uh, if you don't have an insurance policy for it, then that's going to come out of your pocket as a dealer. The other thing is you mentioned equipment. Some of these uh, bigger pieces of equipment have forty or fifty thousand, or forty or fifty gallons and a thousand gallons of oil and whatnot in them. And if you're out on a rental, or out on a job site somewhere, and they hit a rock and dumps that oil out on the ground, it's got to be cleaned up. And unless you have a policy that covers your pollution exposure off-premises, again, it's one of those things that's not going to be covered in the standard policy. So, yeah, if you don't have a, if you're doing equipment market, whatever, you should definitely have a pollution policy. Gotcha. All right, well, let's move on to an equipment floater policy. And uh, I've seen some that have uh, a split between replacement costs versus actual cash value, depending on the age of the equipment. Can you comment on that? What are we... <laughs> yeah, replacement cost. Uh, the reason I'm I'm taking most of these is more geared towards the overall package, and uh, Jamie handles more of the uh, rental end of it and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, I'll just kind of carry on with it uh, okay. as long as I can here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll leave that between you and Jamie. <laughs> right. Well, well, we got cues in there, so when one wants to take over, the other one will, you know, back off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyhow, Don, uh, yeah, replacement cost versus actual cash value, it's a big deal um, because you take a two-year-old piece of equipment and it's on replacement cost, you're going to get, uh, or either lost or damaged, you're going to get yourself back whole. It's going to do whatever it costs to replace that piece of equipment or to do that repair on that piece of equipment. On an actual cash value policy, you're looking at a depreciation, and it doesn't matter if it's two days old. There's going to be some kind of depreciation in there once it's gone out the door and it's now a used unit. But if you take a unit that's two years old, um, you may get anywhere from a 20 to a 50% uh, uh, depreciation on it based on the hours it's on the equipment, based on the condition it's in, and based on the inventory unit itself. Because like automobiles, if you were going to buy a, uh, an old Falcon, the prices on them, you know, dropped pretty quick, so they didn't hold their value. And there's equipment out there that becomes obsolete or something that doesn't hold their value. So you could take, uh, you know, an actual cash value on something like that and lose 40 or 50% of the value of it real quick on replacement costs. And most of the companies that write replacement costs do it for three to five years, and after that it reverts to actual cash value. But you like to have a piece of equipment that's two or three years old to be able to get it back and put it in your operation without having to, to go out and spend another 20 or 30% on a fifty or $75,000 piece of equipment. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, right. if you can get somebody to write it on replacement costs, that's the ideal situation. Um, but, again, a lot of that stuff is up to the insurance company, and whether they want to offer a replacement cost or not, that's uh, that's their choice. Right. Right. Well, everything has a cost benefit relationship, so I guess you have to kind of look at that and see what what the what the fleet looks like at that point. Right. Uh, 
What, what about on auto policies? Uh, there's always a discussion about deductibles and how big a deductible should have. And along those same lines, there's always a cost-benefit relationship. So what are your, what are your thoughts or your thoughts on deductibles on, on auto policies? Well, on auto policies and basically all policies, uh, whatever, poli- whatever limit you can take on a deductible that doesn't break the bank, the better off you're going to be. Also comes into relating to, uh, you know, your policy premiums. So the higher deductibles you have, the lower premiums you're going to have. And uh, the fewer losses that Jamie alluded to that you turn in, the obviously the frequency thing goes away when you have higher deductibles. But um, I, I'm working on a client right now who has a $1,000 deductible on his autos and whatever. And um, I don't think that's enough. If you have... A fleet of ten or more units, then there you should be probably looking at a five thousand dollar deductible. Uh, some of that will offset your first claim anyhow, you know. So if you're not turning them in, but you have a little bit of skin in the game, so you have a little more thing that you're going to be a little more cautious of what you're doing with your with your automobiles. Um, now, uh, equipment is the same way. The higher deductible you get, the lower premium you're going to have. Uh, which when you start looking at a, maybe a $5,000 deductible all around on your inventory, your buildings, and you know how people have uh, buildings, uh, you know, how often do you really have a building burned down? And, and if your million-dollar building burns down, is $5,000 deductible really going to do anything to you at that point in time? Uh, so it's worth trying to save that premiums and keep from turning out, of, you know, those claims in if you don't have to, so... Uh, My recommendation is $5,000 deductible on pretty much on anything, depending on the size of your company, but you never want to go below $1,000. You know, once you get into that $500 a month mark or below $1,000, underwriters look at that as you're not putting anything on the line. So they will rate you in different areas that, you know, you won't even see, but it's going to go back to that deductible. Uh, So the higher deductible you go, the better rates you get across the board. When they say that a dealer is willing to take some exposure risk on his own, then they can adjust the liability premiums, the umbrella premiums, and everything right on down the line. Although you don't necessarily see that anywhere, it will be reflected in your overall premiums. Okay. I, I, along those lines, I have a hypothetical question. So I've got a skid steer loader on one of my trailers going to a job site, and while it's on the trailer, the chain snaps and the, and the skid steer loader falls into the highway. So... Who, who covers that? Is it the equipment floater or is it the auto coverage? Well, again, you got to put <laughs> things depending on who's hauling it. If you have a call, a lot of these guys are having equipment delivered now by a hauler, somebody that's a contract hauler. Those will be covered by that. Uh, they have a cargo coverage right. will be covered on that. A third, a third yeah. party, I understand that. Right. Okay. So then if it's a dealer, uh, if it's on the highway and he's going down the highway or whatever, it could be either one. It could be the floater or it could be the auto. But it's, uh, more than likely, it's going to be they're going to have the same uh, coverages with the, you know, with the same carrier. So it really is a uh, it's not a, a major issue unless you have two separate policies where you have the inventory under one and and then your auto coverage is on the on another policy. Then you're probably going to be looking at um, a little bit of a and Jamie, you might want to answer on this a little bit too, but my thought process is basically that uh, normally that would be covered by your floater insurance, <clears throat> but again, it could be depending if your truck ran off the road and dumped it down and some, it may go back to the liability, back to the truck policy, 
but I guess in either case, you're probably protected, don't it? Right, right. Jamie, any other thoughts? I think my only additional thought on that is it has a lot, obviously, this is sort of a, a broad answer, but it really depends on how the insurance policy is written, and my biggest recommendation is read your policy or have someone read it who understands insurance to make sure that you know how you're actually covered, because it can be different depending on the way that your policy is written. Um, Don't take it for granted and assume that it's covered and find out uh, at the worst possible time that maybe you're not. Yeah. Yeah. The other and thing brings- may play in that Don would be that you might know, have an inventory uh, policy with a thousand dollar deductible and auto policy with five thousand dollar deductible. So you know <laughs> it may it may wind up going either way. Right. Yeah. I think well, too. In- it depends on whether it's covered under the REP program. If it's out on a rental, if it's moving on a rental equipment protection program, and it happens with all of them, it depends on if it's off premises. If it's uh, if it's on a job site and it's not on the highway and it's not on the licensed vehicle thing, then it would go under the floater. If it's on an REP program, it probably would go under the rental equipment protection program. Right. And, and so that brings me to a, a, another subject along those lane, same lines. Uh, how important is it to have one agent covering all aspects of the company's insurance needs? Because I've, I've seen a couple of companies where they have somebody for Umbrella and GL uh, with one agent, and then they've got another agent for uh, equipment and auto and comp, uh, that that type of thing. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? The, about that importance sure. of one person. But the best thing is a lot of it depending on what coverages you got. But the more you can keep with one carrier, the better off you're going to be for claims purposes, for uh, ease of operation, the certificates, and those type of things. And a lot of policies, like when you have it with the one company. You're having, uh, they consistently flow with one another, the policies do. So you have one company right in the umbrella and one company right in the general liability. Uh, they may not necessarily be compatible. The general liability policy may cover one thing, but it might be excluded on the, uh, under the umbrella policy. So when you, when you have one carrier handling all that, you, you're better protected and you have less uh, hassles when claims come up because sometimes you might have a claim that's paid for by one policy, but the other guy don't want to pay it you know it's not no it's, we don't pay that type of claim so you've got a you have a conflict of interest there at some point in time so you you're really better off keeping everything with one carrier except for uh your work comp and on work comp uh, you take a company, I probably shouldn't use any names, but you'll take a company that does all your general liabilities and everything. They also will do your work comp, but they're not necessarily a, a work comp carrier as far as expertise, as far as volume and rate. So you may be paying a higher rate uh, for that just to have it you know, conform with the, uh, you know, the other policy. So I would always say that work comp should be standalone, and you should be getting the right company that's going to handle the claims for you and it does the service work and and knows how to control and you know, do the loss control issues and so on and so forth. But then you get policies like directors and officers or fiduciary, uh, EPLI, employment-related practice uh, policies that um, can be standalone and sometimes have to be. But those policies, uh, I've seen, like you mentioned, I saw a dealer here the other day, where he had a, a director's and officer's policy, a fiduciary policy, and an EPLI policy, and it's employment liability. Uh, 
discrimination type of things, what that is. But uh, he's got three separate policies. And for each policy, you've got different rate. I mean, you have three policies are rating from dollar one. If you have a combined policy with all three of those coverages, then you, your rates are going to be a lot lower, and you're going to have basically the same coverages, uh, but it's all into one policy. Um, yeah, I, I so think, there are yes times that you that. should have different agents, but for the most part, um, I would try to keep all my my big policies, my inventory, my property, my general liability, those things all with one carrier. Uh, I agree. So let's uh, let's move on to general liability. Uh, my my question here is that I, I think that it's typically based on revenue, but I've I've also seen it based on equipment value, which I thought was unusual. In your opinion, what what should GL be based on? What are the what are the real proper factors in in getting a, a GL number? Okay. Well, first of all, uh, there's a little misnomer in that because I don't know that anybody rates off of inventory. General liability is going to be rated off of mainly a lot of them are doing on sales. The other issue is that um, you you have a policy. It's a general liability policy, but you also have a policy called a garage liability policy. And if they'll write it, which equipment dealers fall under that garage liability, the exposures and everything that they do fall under a garage liability. When they do that, they rate the premiums on number of employees. (laughs) That's the situation to be under. Um, Because if you're rating under employees, you could say your sales went up uh, $2 million. Employees didn't, so you're going to wind up getting the same uh, premium or same rates. But if you're under uh, sales and you estimated $10 million on sales and then went to $12 million, then you're uh, you're going to get an audit and you're going to pay you know the additional premium based on that increased sales. So the best way to do it, if you can get it, and if they do it right, because there's some things that you have to tag along with on a garage policy, you make sure they're in place, and that's customer inventory or goods and that sort of thing that rolls into that a little bit. But uh, that's the best way to rate the liability is under a garage policy. I see. And, you know, I've, I've uh, in the past I've had, I've had geo policies where they were based on revenues, and an argument that I always had uh, with the geo uh, agent was that uh, you're basing actual when I say equipment sales versus equipment rentals. I always thought that the equipment sales shouldn't be as much exposure as the equipment rental because of the manufacturers and and their warranties and guarantees. When uh, when you're selling somebody else's say skid steer or mini excavator beside outside of your rental fleet. What do you okay? Well, so that's a another issue, Donald, because. Sales and stuff rate the general liability, but there are also uh, rating factors inside that policy for rental equipment with and without operator, uh, rental equipment with and without certificates. So uh, the the rate the agent should be checking that out in the beginning. So it might have a question there that says, "How much rental are you do?" And they say, "Well, we're doing two million. So that's part of that ten million dollar. Uh, sales situation. Now, how much of that $2 million is uh, covered with a certificate of insurance? Um, so they'll ask questions like that. How many, is any of that with an operator or is it all without operator? And so they have different rates uh, based on those exposures. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, 
that's a little uh, bit of a tricky question, a little bit of a tricky situation, but you still have to have an agent or somebody that knows what they're looking at on your policies because just while we're into it, if you were, uh, if you had a million dollars, if you had $10 million worth of equipment on in your inventory and $3 million of that was uh, rental equipment, then you can go farther down in and say, okay, well, $3 million of that's on rental equipment. If it's covered by a certificate of insurance or if it's under REP, then they only have to rate your business policy under $7 million instead of under $10 million. So it can give you a break in your overall premiums. But again, you have to have somebody that knows what they're doing and how to build that policy and how to get back to the underwriters. You have, in all your policies, you have fraud statements. So you have to make sure that you're applying the right inventories, the right amounts. You don't want to go in and say, I've got $7 million when you have $10 million, and then have a claim and then have them come back and say, well, you got $10 million, you told us $7 million. So they can either take a co-insurance penalty against you or they can deny the claim entirely uh, as being fraudulent. And every policy you have out there, if you look at it, there's a fraud statement in there. And so they don't have to pay a claim if they can determine fraud. So you have to make sure that you're not just guessing at something. You make sure that you know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and uh, Jim, you mentioned a, another key word uh, that that is always sensitive to me, and that uh, I'd like to know you, you, y'all's thoughts on the types of insurances that should or should not be auditable. Oh well, that's another one. You don't have much control of that. That's up to the insurance company whether they want an audit or not. Uh, all your work comp is going to be audited. You can't get away right. from that. Uh, your general liabilities, in some cases, they don't audit. Uh, and again, it comes back to the uh, to the underwriter. A lot of the uh, companies will sporadically audit. They'll say you're open, you can be audited, but a lot of them don't. Obviously, they have to hire an outside auditor, and somebody's got to go out there, and you've got to be paid. So if everything's running smooth, you're not having a lot of claims or anything, probably chances are you're never going to get audited, uh, or you might be one of them spot check things. But you don't have a lot of control over whether you're being audited or not. The inventory, uh, the way they wind up doing that is that they'll get you come at the end of the year and going in and say you've got $10 million worth of inventory. At the end of the year, they'll come out and do a you know snap check on what you've got. If you've got you know, more or less, they'll you know credit you back. Uh, so, again, well, some of the bigger, I say bigger, some of the companies are really into the equipment market. They'll do a monthly reporting. And so on that monthly reporting, you'll just fill out a form once a month and send in your inventory amounts, and they'll build, they'll base the premiums based on those re- monthly reports. So it, that can be a better thing for you because let's say you had three million dollars worth of inventory in in in, uh, in the, uh, your uh, portfolio at the beginning of the uh, month, but you sold two million of that at the end of the month. You only have a million left. You're going to report that million, so your premiums are going to be based on what you actually have in stock at that point in time. So uh, some dealers work it to the point in time where they get their inventory ordered in in the beginning of the month, and by the time they get down at the end, they've had it sold, a portion of it, and so they're only going to pay uh, premiums on what's left at the end of the month. Right. Uh, I wanted to add Jim, into that just a little bit as well, if, yeah. I, if I may. Um, with Please. rental equipment protection, which is the program that we offer for dealers or rental houses that are renting equipment to customers to protect it uh, from physical damage while it's out on rent. One of the things that's nice about an audible 
auditable policy, as Jim was mentioning, uh, any equipment that's out on rent that's then being protected by rental equipment protection, you would be able to remove from that total dollar amount as well, which can help reduce your overall premium. So that's another piece with an audible pos- auditable policy, that's hard to say, um, that's actually a great benefit. Yeah. You know, Jamie, I was with a, a client the other day, and uh, they actually uh, did a good bit of sub-renting from other rental companies. And I found that the premium rate for the uh, re-rented equipment to be much higher than the equipment that they actually owned. Why, why would that be? I mean, it's the same equipment. You want that one, Jamie? Well, I was going to speak to how I can speak to how rental equipment protection would cover that, but you can speak specifically to the policy itself and why it would be more expensive. Well, it's just because you're transfer, because you don't have real control over that equipment. Once you've, you're talking about on a re-rental, you rent it to uh, XYZ company, he rents it to the customer, to his customer. So there's a gap in between there. Who's actually got control over that? And who's going to be responsible for the liability and uh, so they just, you know, it's. I guess it's kind of a marketing tool for them, a way to to make an increased uh, uh, premiums out of something and not familiar with the exposure. The big problem comes down if an underwriter is not familiar with an exposure, which this is a new thing going on right now, uh, and there's not a lot of underwriters out there that really understand it. So they may be, uh, they may have better protection by being going to the, you know second and third party, but they don't understand it. So. The guy that uh, owns the equipment is probably going to wind up paying more insurance premium. Right. Okay. Well, one of the things that we're doing with rent, um, so one of the things that we're doing with the rental equipment protection program, we actually have a few clients who are in the re-rental marketplace, and what they do with rental equipment protection is that they were, they put it on every single rental, and so then that way, as a lot of these uh, re-rental marketplaces are starting to show up and be really successful because what's happening is the contractors, medium, large-sized contractors who may have equipment that sits idle for days, weeks, months, now can recoup some of what could potentially be lost revenue because it's sitting, maybe they don't need it for a job or whatever, they can go ahead and make some rental revenue off of that piece of equipment. Well, with the marketplace kind of being the middleman and not knowing whether or not the uh, rental uh, or the customer who's renting or the owner of the equipment, you know, who's going to pay for what if there's damages, physical damage done to the equipment. Now the marketplace is sitting sort of in the middle and always requiring that protection. It really makes sure and, and confirm, assures both parties or all parties that the equipment is going to end up being covered. So the fact that they may, if they put that equipment on their own policy, in some way could potentially increase their their rate because of risk and, and whatnot, exposure involved in that. Now with this this program in place for the re-rental marketplace, it, it really is a, a cost savings in the end for the for, for all parties involved. Right, right. Good good points. Very good points. I, I want to jump back to auto for a second. Uh, can an insurance company demand certain safety devices be put into haul trucks such as dash cams, et cetera, uh, in order to be covered? Yes. 
the answer simply is yes. The insurance companies can do whatever they feel comfortable with working with. So uh, they come in and decide that they uh, want a GPS system or something on them. Uh, that's up to the dealer. If the dealer or the customer decides that, no, we don't want to do that, the, under, the insurance company does not have to insure them. So they pretty much rule the roost. If they don't want to cover something, they don't have to. And so it's up to the client to say, yeah, I can live with that issue, or I can't. I have to move my insurance someplace else. But yeah, okay. they can dictate to wherever they want on anything they want. They, you know, for example, uh, right now you've got dealer insurance companies who, who don't want to do cranes, or they can't be over forty foot a crane, or they don't uh, do aerial lifts. I got a number of companies out there don't want to touch the aerial lift, so you either have to ensure that exposure someplace else, or they won't write it. Uh, so scaffolding and some of those things where dealers sometimes have uh, uh, some of that that they run out. So anything that that insurance company decides that they don't want, they don't understand the exposure, they don't plan on writing it, uh, they can dictate that in any fashion that they want. Yeah, I, I came across someone the other day, uh, interesting story. He's, they rented uh, area lifts uh, up to 90 feet, and they were going up to uh, 100 and 110-foot lifts, and the agent was going to increase their, their premiums. And so the, the rental house said, well, how much more dead is a guy going to be if he falls from 90 feet versus 100 feet, you know? Yeah. Well, that's not the case. The case is that how much more exposure you have, how frequency, again, comes back in. Is that, you know, there's big cranes when they go down or any of those things you get up there. Maybe it's not just the guy that fell off the top. It's what they fell on, you know. You have a distance around everything that those things work on, and you've got property damage. You've got all kind of different exposures there. And the underwriter is going to look at it and say, hey, I don't like that exposure. So, yeah, will we take that risk? Well, yeah, well, let's take that risk, but let's take that risk at a higher rate. Right. Right. Okay. And, you know, there's another term I'd, I'd like you to talk about, and there's a difference between what is called admitted paper and non-admitted paper. And oh, yeah. We've got about uh, four minutes left, so. Four minutes. I don't know they have enough time. <laughs> admitted paper, uh, basically what admitted paper is, Don, is you're uh, authorized by each state or whatever to sell or uh, uh, market insurance in, in that state. And if um, if you're admitted paper, and something happens, insurance company decides they're going to go out of business or, or they can't pay a claim or whatever, the state will step in and they'll be an advocate for you. They'll negotiate, they'll intervene on it. And if it can't be paid, you know, the either insurance company doesn't have the wherewithal or whatever, the state fund will pay for claims up to, and, and this is in general, but like in the state of Ohio, they'll pay up to $300,000 per claim. If it's on non-admitted paper, and you have a discrepancy with the insurance company or they happen to go out of business or whatever, you have no protection. So like okay. out in California in 2018, there's a lot of fires which are still going on in different places. There were a number of smaller insurance companies that had to close their doors because they couldn't pay you know, the existing claims that they had turned into them. So if they're That's on admitted right. paper, uh, the state is going to step in, they're going to intervene, and they're going to pay you know, the the claims that the dealer has up to $300,000 per claim. Uh, or it could be more. California might be 500000 or it could be less. But on the average, it's around 300000 So on a okay. non-admitted paper, you have no protection from the state. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Back in the 90s, uh, um, uh, Make it quick. Lloyds of London. Wrapping up pretty quick. <laughs> back in the 90s, Lloyds of London went bankrupt. Then they 
just finally settled the claim here now not too long ago, and a lot of people were involved in it were dead and gone, but they didn't have claims paid because it was on uh, non-admitted paper. Okay. All right, so one, one last question. How does someone get in touch with J.T. Bates Insurance Group? Oh, I can take that one. Um, well, there's a couple of ways. We have a website, jtbatesgroup.com, that they can visit and do a lot of, get some information there. They can always call us at 877-900-8729. Or you can reach out to me directly. My email is jbates at jtbatesgroup.com. We'd love to help any way we can. Okay. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time today from your busy schedules to talk about what I think is one of the most important topics in the equipment industry today. So thank you both for, for joining us today. Thank, thank you so much for having, for having us. We uh, really enjoy it. Thank you. Okay. Well, so in, in closing, uh, you know how to reach JT Bates. Uh, but if you want to reach me, Rental Equip Talk Radio at gmail.com. Uh, remember, you can always listen on demand. This show will be on podcast starting tomorrow. And I hope some of the issues discussed today either helped or provoked some questions for the success of your business. Uh, don't forget about my book on Amazon, Screw You, The Comeback is Always Stronger Than the Setback. If you'd like to be a guest, suggest a guest, just uh, let me know and I'll be glad to accommodate you. I have a quote today that says, you shouldn't focus on why you can't do something, which is what most people do. You should focus on why perhaps you can and be one of the exceptions, so said by Steve Case. It's been my honor to spend this time with you. I'm Donald Charbonnet, your host and the diehard of the rental industry, signing off. And remember, don't waste the day. Be safe and good renting. And again, good luck in 2020. And again, Jamie and Jim, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for tuning in to Rental Equip Talk Radio. Be sure to join your host, Donald Charbonnet, next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.